<laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the State of the Industry panel. My name is Stace Knobel with Rock Farm Supply Chain Solutions and board member of LTNA. LTNA is Logistics and Transportation Association of North America. Our purpose is connecting people in logistics. We are a nonprofit and have over 25,000 members. Be sure to stop by our booth, 6281, and say hi to our board members uh, while here. We are going to have a panel discussing the state of the industry. Feel free to speak up and ask questions along the way. We encourage your participation to make this a success. One of our panelists from Anheuser-Busch uh, had to cancel travel due to the cor corporate ban on travel uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, so we'll get started with introductions, um, and then we'll kick off questions from there. If you want to start us off, Bob. Uh, yeah, my name is Bob Clunk. I'm Chief Operating Officer of Project Vert, a uh, full circle e-commerce solution. Uh, I've been doing some sort of fulfillment since before that was even a word. Um, started in, um, started off as, a, as an engineer, but I wasn't very good at it, so I had to find a line of work I could make money in. So I, I got into uh, trucking, warehousing, uh, we called it traffic back then, and have watched this whole uh, world of e-commerce and fulfillment unfold over the last 20 years or, or so. So it's been a really fun, wild ride, and the, the pace of change just keeps increasing. My name is Wendy Topp. I am the transportation manager for a bedding manufacturer. Uh, we are currently getting ready to open up a 130,000 square foot distribution center when I get back, so I will be running that as well. <laughs> My name is Todd Tabrink, and I work for Alliance Shippers. We're an intermodal marketing company, uh, also truck brokerage. Been working in the industry for about uh, 20 years now, and uh, primarily work in the Midwest, but uh, ship uh, all over the United States. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Uh, to kick us off with the first question, let's talk about the coronavirus. Um, have you seen any effect from the coronavirus within your supply chain or operations? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us more? <laughs> it's, uh, it's been interesting what we've been seeing, uh, specifically most of my business in the Midwest. Um, there's not very much freight coming off the West Coast. So a lot of the truckers are not wanting to go to the West Coast. So we're seeing a lot of disruption in capacity and pricing. Uh, we feel that it's going to be short term, that it's not going to last a real long time. Starting to read uh, some of the publications that uh, ships are moving and imports should be hitting the coast next couple of weeks, which will alleviate a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now. Uh, but it's, it's been an issue uh, for the last probably two, three months already uh, since the Chinese New Year started. So uh, we're hoping that things will smooth out and get back to normal. Yeah, go for it. So I've seen some impact, especially dealing with freight forwarders. So some slowdown of product coming in, uh, slowdown of even conversations about business development as people are just uneasy and don't know, it's, it's throwing their volumes off. Um, and uh, also, I expect, as it just came off of, uh, of, the, of the Chinese New Year that led right into this, uh, then you also see with this disruption, it's going to take a long time to wind it back up. 
So when, it, when a supply chain stops, you all know it's so complex and it's so deep and long, the chain, that all these things have to get wound up. Like for example, where are all the containers and where are the empties? So there'll be, be a lot of secondary impacts like that that, that take a while to iron out. And uh, ports will be either feast or famine, uh, a lot of backhauls and empty runs of getting things back in position, you know, all the way back to raw materials. Well, 65% of our product actually comes from China. So we had the Chinese New Year that we had to worry about, then the coronavirus hit. And so we did just find out the other day that some of our containers have finally hit the water, but we keep four to five weeks worth of product in-house to ship out. So we are looking at in two to three weeks, we're gonna be scrambling just to try and make those shipments. So the coronavirus actually is getting ready to hit us pretty hard. Uh, to lead into the next question, this one's for you, Todd. Uh, can you provide some insight into what precision railroading is? That's a good question. What is precision <laughs> railroading? Um, we've heard a lot about it in the intermodal uh, in, uh, part of the freight industry, and uh, all the class one railroads have been implementing the precision railroading. Um, my definition would not necessarily be the same as the railroads, uh, but that's nothing new there. Uh, the railroads, they're gearing towards safety and efficiencies and, you know, going to make everything better for their customers. And, and they've got these five different codes that they're, they're running their precision railroading on. Uh, the reality of what we're seeing in the market is uh, reduction in some lanes in certain markets and uh, service, not what we would like to see, what our customers would like to see. Uh, but then in other lanes, what we're seeing is uh, exceptional service and it's running very well and, and it works very well. So there's a lot of variables that come into place when you start talking about uh, precision railroading and how is it gonna affect you and, and where is it gonna go, it's, um, it's the railroads trying to be efficient and uh, safety and more streamlined in their business operation. Uh, but from a customer standpoint, it can be a great benefit or not quite so much. So it uh, depends on where you're at, where you're shipping to, where your origin destinations are and how it's going to impact you. Um, the railroads are doing it. Uh, they've got some fine tuning to go. Um, but they're all going with it, and we're, we're going to be living with it from now on. So uh, it will be interesting to see where this, uh, this road takes us for the customers and where we can continue to utilize the railroads on the, on the intermodal side. Wonderful. Before we go into the next question, are there any questions from the audience for these guys? No? All right. Wendy, uh, being a manufacturer, what's the biggest challenge when it comes to your shipping needs? I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> sales. Because <laughs> we're sales. No, it is. It's uh, our sales department. You know, they want to 
bring the customer in, they want to make the deal, they want to get the business, and we want to make it happen. But the problem is, is there's too many promises. You know, I want to put an order in today for California. You guys want it there on Wednesday. You want a 48-hour notice with an appointment. You need a guy to help you unload it, and they're just, when do you make it happen? With the help of my LTNA friends, I make it happen. But <laughs> that's the problem, is it just becomes the expectation. But now, one of my biggest challenges in shipping is Amazon. They, everybody wants us to do that same day, including my sales department. And so now it's go push, push, push. You go find who you can to make that happen. Um, they're wanting a lot of that via FedEx, UPS, but they don't understand the restrictions that are there as far as weight limits, sizes, manpower anything like that. And then of course you have the problem where at the end, the end customer wants you to take it inside the door so then you run into your final mile issue. So it's just from the beginning to end that you just have that issue of how can I make this happen? And that's what I do every day is just try and make it happen. And if it fails, then I find a way that it's not gonna fail the next time. All right. Um, speaking of Amazon, um, Bob, we'll start with you on this one. I'm sure all three have an opinion. Um, Bob, is Amazon taking over the world? So I, I couldn't have planned that segue any better. I didn't know you were going <laughs> right. to say that. So, right. so that's great. So you know, when, when growing up, well, I'll go back in the Wayback Machine, the Sears Roebuck catalog was the internet of the day, right? So I lived, grew up in a rural area, and you had your Sears catalog store in town. It wasn't a real Sears store. It was just a place where the packages came. So you got that Sears catalog, and man, it would, you would just go through every page. It was so much fun to look at it. Back then, you could look at guns and hunting stuff in there, too. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then Sears had a, had a t tough way of doing business with their brands. So back growing up, source of pride, the tallest building in the world was the Sears Tower. That's no longer the case. It's not even in the United States anymore, the, the, tallest, the tallest building. So Sears went around selling brands and they became famous for things like Whirlpool, Kenmore, the, the big brands they ended up buying up. But it, but it wasn't a nice way. They started competing with their brands. They started uh, making deals with brands and they destroyed the mom and pop distribution network that existed. So every town in the America had a family owned uh, appliance store selling refrigerators and washing machines and what have you back to start with the TVA. And uh, so once, once a, a company like Sears bought up that inventory and made deals and they made it just a little bit less, less quality and sold it for a little bit less price and it destroyed that distribution network. Then Sears went back and said, well, we're gonna negotiate our deal. Well, now they, they destroyed that brand. So how else would Sears end up owning all those brands? Right, so, hmm, uh, foreboding of the future. So then comes Walmart. So Walmart buys things cheap and sells things cheap. And at first it was more, more, uh, more of a, a, a discount store. Then when they started bringing in better and better brands, then they started making private label. So you had Prina Dog Chow sitting right next to Old Roy and the old Roy was uh, equal quality, one might argue, and a cheaper price. So now Walmart's competing with their own brands. So we're seeing a pattern here, right? So, so we went from a paper catalog to retail stores, all creating competition with the brands that they sell. And not among the brands, but competing with their brands. 
So then comes Amazon, right? A little bookstore in 1996. So what, what you're seeing now is uh, an, a, an, a dense network of warehouses and a lot of technology that puts this inventory where it seems almost insurmountable. How, how can anyone possibly manage their brand with the immense power of Amazon? So now you see the same phenomenon. Amazon now is no longer just a marketplace for brands. They have their own brands next to yours. And so brands are really suffering, and a lot of big name brands like Nike have pulled out of Amazon. And I think you're going to see more and more of that where brands do not want to be in a place where they have to compete with their own distribution network. So what's the alternative? So how could you ever build a dense enough network fast enough with the lead head start that Amazon has? You can't. There's no way you could pour enough concrete fast enough to, to build it. But you could build, you could build something by connecting everything that's already there. So if all of us work together, there's plenty of warehouses right now and there's plenty of capacity and there's plenty of people who will join a collective or a movement if the technology were there. But the problem's been with brands, everybody had to buy their own technology. So if you wanted to buy an order, order management system um, or any kind of big technology, you had to spend millions of dollars to, to buy technology. But now with this increasing speed of development and the availability of technology, the ability to compete with the monolithic giants is now here. There's ways for companies to work together and not, and not see it as, as competition, but co-opetition. And, and think of it like the old farmer's co-op, right? Everybody, all the farmers don't look at they're competing with each other. You know, they're all working to grow corn. It doesn't matter if he grows corn and I grow corn, we all grow corn and we, 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 and we buy our fertilizer and our fuel and our everything together. So that's what's gonna keep Amazon from taking over the world, is how can, how can brands get together? And, and you've, you've seen this happen where, you know, fancy words came up, it was, you know, we, you know, back in the day it was trucking and traffic and warehousing and then it became fulfillment and omni-channel and multi-channel and all these words. That technology is just now beginning to really work. And so there is a way and, and things are going to change quickly with the with the uh, the advent of available technology. And and to go along with that, thank you. Um, on the transportation side, you know, years ago with the trucking and intermodal companies, the hassle was always trying to get into the grocery warehouses, and then it was the WalMarts that were difficult to work with, and now today it's the online retailers that are difficult to work with. And with all of their regulations and, and you got to be on time and you can't be late for your, right? All of that kind of stuff. Um, stuff that we should be doing anyway. Um, but because of their, their restrictions and their, um, what they make us, the hoops they make you jump through, it makes it very difficult. And so they're going to continue to move a lot of freight, move a lot of product. Um, but it's going to be a lot more work from the transportation guys to work with them to make it all happen and decide which is the best mode to use, trucking or intermodal, which will work best in a particular lane. Absolutely. All right, uh, Todd, where do you see truck service and intermodal service competing and overlapping? Well, um, 
there's a lot of places where intermodal and over the road are competing today, and it's it's flip flopped. Um, part of that is due to the coronavirus. Um, right now, you can run to the West Coast cheaper in a truck from St. Louis than you could uh, run in it on the rail, and then you have the transit time that comes into play. So it you're you're seeing a lot of competition. Uh, between the rails and the truckers right now, um, the rails aren't always so quick to react. Trucking can react much quicker, and they are able to turn things around faster than what the, what the railroads are able to. So we're seeing a lot of competition in both areas, and we're seeing right now uh, more freight going back to over the road and after that market gets saturated a little bit more um, and capacity gets tight, they'll go back to intermodal. Then we have to deal with the transit times, um, you know, the origin destinations and the level of service uh, that the railroads are able to provide. And in specific lanes, they do very well. So the, the, the competition between the two is constantly changing and over the last well, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, they have gone back and forth numerous times where one will have the advantage over the other and then capacity will tighten up for one and the other will take over. And so it's constantly with my customers going back and forth depending on the cycle and what's going on in the industry and the economy at that time. Wonderful. Uh, Wendy? What qualities do you look for in a great transportation partner? Uh, my main one is communication. Uh, we, you know, the right now GlideAway has been with a 3PL for nine years. Um, we, I just worked on getting a new contract with a new 3PL, which that starts up next week when I get back. But one of my biggest complaints that I had with that 3PL was no communication. I actually was reaching out more than they were. I was giving them more information than they were giving me on my loads, my shipments, and that's what I paid them to do to take my time so I can go out and do something I need to do in the warehouse and make those other hot shipments happen on the backside. Um, so communication is a big thing, and another thing with the new 3PL that we are bringing in was word of mouth. Um, I spend a lot of time with these people, but I also spend a lot of time with their competitors, and even their competitors said it was a good decision. So um, I just, it, that's my biggest thing is make sure you communicate to me. I shouldn't have to reach out to you for answers and make sure, you know, we are a very high maintenance account. We let our customers dictate how we run our freight, which that's something that I'm trying to work on changing which again is why I have my problem with my sales, because they allow them to make that happen. I understand it, we can make things happen, but we also have to work together as a team. I will get you your freight, I'll get you your product, you'll make your sales, but you gotta let me do it right and get it to you in a way that you want it and wanna be able to sell it as soon as it comes off that truck. And I'll go with that because communication is so vitally important with my customers, um, they always want to be proactive and not reactive. And if so, if there's an issue that's going to come up with a particular shipment, they want to know in advance. And, that's, and that has changed 
customers always want to know in advance, but the ability to know what's going on with the shipment in the routing process today, we're so much more advanced with online tracking and uh, GPS and, and all this other uh, services that we have available, uh, not only just intermodally, but also over the road, probably much more uh, specific over the road nowadays with the GPS trackers. And customers are wanting to know exactly. And I've got a customer, I gotta be there early. If it's there early, I'm on time. If I'm there on time, I'm late. So um, it's, it's been really important and uh, the communication with my operations people directly to the customer to keep them in the loop, to let them know, because stuff happens, we all know it. We gotta give them as much advance notice as possible so they can react and make adjustments so that we can get things taken care of as quickly as possible. So yeah, communication is huge. Something else that's caused part of the problem, well not part of the problem, but misunderstanding with it is when the new mandate hit with the drivers, um, the only amount of time they became electronic logs, there were no longer three log books that they carried. One was legit, one was this one, and one was that one. I know I've got uncles that are freight, they carried five. So it it's getting that understanding of, yes, maybe two years ago, I could have done this, but why can't I do it now? Why, Wendy, why can't you get this there? You did it before. Well, because there's a lot of other strict laws on the drivers that you can't force them to do something. So I've actually come down to where I've had to pay more money to put two guys on a load just because of a promise that was made. But that is another big issue that I've had recently with shipping is because of that log, the, the electronic log. Yeah, you can't, there's no flexibility whatsoever. You gotta stop, you gotta stop. I've had guys had to sit in my dock door and stay there because they were too long somewhere else and we have to wait and let them go and then I gotta call my customer and say, sorry, you're not gonna get your freight for another day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add there, on, on transportation providers, uh, there, there's a couple levels to look at there. You know, there, it's become cliche now that the biggest mover of people owns no cars, right, Uber? So you're gonna hear a term called the digitization of freight. So normally we think about you know, a shipper, a, a transportation manager, whether it's you know, the, the direct carrier, or you know, the, the op operating the vessel or, the, or the, the truck, or a broker, and then, then the, the end consumer, and all working in a line. That's gonna start working more in a circle instead of a line, and the, the best, the people who are gonna win this game are the ones that also create this collective of freight that's not just a one, I gotta call this person who contacts this person who contacts this person. Once that arrangement is made, the communication is gonna work in a circle so that communication doesn't have to move from node to node to node to node to node. That, that broker relationship or the carrier management relationship is gonna, is gonna be sitting there in the cloud just like the Uber app works so that people, there's going to be more and more self-serve, more real-time information about what's going on that, that eliminates a lot of these delays and gaps in communication. I do agree the number one most important thing in any successful business is communication and trust. So trust comes from conversation, communication, doing what you say you're going to do all the time, 
Bad news is not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. So when bad things happen, communicate it as quickly and as accurately as you possibly can. And those are the kind of traits I would look for. Wonderful. Um, Todd, how do you make the best routing decision of truck versus center model? All depends on the customer. Uh -huh. <laughs> what do they want? Um, you know, uh, we run the full gamut with uh, intermodal and over the road. You know, customers that want it cheap. Cheaper is better. Well, that's, you know, cheap isn't always the best way to go. If you don't care when it gets there, I can run cheap. Uh, if you want it there in a specific time, uh, you're going to have to pay probably more for it. So depending on the lane and what you're moving and what the customer's requirements are. Um, I've got some customers that, yeah, you can take five, six days to get it to destination and that's okay. Or you've got some customers that are like Wendy's, <laughs> I gotta have it there in two days, make it happen. There's different levels of service with over the road and intermodal. So then you pick which is best for the customer and which does the customer, is the customer comfortable utilizing. Um, you can run intermodally about the same in certain lanes as a single truck driver running from the Midwest to the West Coast. It's gonna cost you more uh, than your cheap intermodal rate, but I can get it there in three days. Um, truck, you can run it over the road, you got a little bit more flexibility uh, with the driver, but you can also go with a team driver, get it there in two days. So it all depends on what the customer's needs are and how much flexibility they have and are they willing to go with the intermodal option even though it's gonna cost more than a traditional container running on the rail, but you get the better service. Um, but then you can also go into specific lanes going east out of St. Louis right now, I can run it to the northeast in two days. That's the same transit as a truck. And I can save the customer a significant amount of money. So there's just one lane that works that way, uh, but the service is very, very good, and it's very consistent, and that's where the precision railroading has worked to my advantage, and it does very well. Uh, but if I go outside of that lane, not so much. And so um, it all boils down to what the customer's needs, specific needs are, how much flexibility do they have, and how much, if any, cost savings they're willing or want to see. And uh, we can provide all different types of options for them and let the customer decide, and then we have to fulfill and come through and do what we say we're going to do. Absolutely. Uh, Bob? How do brands compete in a world where the marketplace and social media rule? So, you know, we, I spoke earlier about the evolution from Sears to Walmart to online and, and Amazon. So, so how, are, how are brands going to survive in that, in that world? So a, a phenomenon that we didn't expect uh, when the word omnichannel came out. So I, I think about, you know, multi-channel was a big thing. Like being able to ship something in a different unit of measure was like groundbreaking. Like, oh, my WMS doesn't do this. I can't pick an each. And, and I think back in the days when I was actually, you know, you know out running warehouses and you know, out on the floor and, and like what a pain it was to have to open a cart and like go up, 
get a pallet down, get a case off, and open it up and get one each out. They're like, this is never going to work. How's this going to happen? So it was groundbreaking when WMSs could handle these multi-units of measure. And then you had the problem of, well, do I still pick them all out of the same place, or do I, do I have combined inventories, or do I have to separate my inventories by different channels? And so that was called multi-channel. They all still ran in single lines. So, so this circle analogy you're going to hear a lot. I talked about it in traffic. I talked about it in, in, uh, in how do you compete against Amazon. So when the word omnichannel came out in 2011 in the Harvard Business Review, you know, the idea that it was ship anything from anywhere, see any inventory anywhere. And it really was kind of a, 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 a fantasy at the time. It still isn't all that real. It's just now becoming real. But the thing that wasn't thought of was social. So now you have all these apps. Uh, TikTok is one that came out in just the last year and a half. It's just been phenomenal among tweens, this Gen Z. And the, so, you know, I grew up with like sports stars and actors, you know, uh, being paid sponsors for products. And then, and then came the influencer of the last 10, 10 years or so. But they were still sort of paid sponsors and people began to see through that. Now you've got the micro-influencers and all of us are that, right? Every time I go to a restaurant to eat, as I'm walking out, some dadgum uh, uh, rating thing comes up. Everybody wants five stars. So now all of us become influencers. So this impact of social. So now when a person goes to buy something, they may want to go, heaven forbid, talk to other human beings, which you know seems to be a challenge for my children. Uh, but they might be in a physical place with product and they want to touch it and feel it. They're going to get on their phone and they're going to not only check price, because that was everybody's fear. Well, they're going to price shop and just, they're going to come in my store, but they're going to price shop it and buy it somewhere else. Now brands are looking at how do I make that all one seamless experience? So the person comes in, they go to look at an item that they want to buy. The first thing they're going to go to now is the social experience. They're going to look at who else is wearing it, eating it, riding it, driving it. Uh, what do they say about it? How do they feel about it? Is it socially responsible? Are they sourcing the wool from a, from a family farm? Uh, uh, yeah, personal experience there. Uh, uh, so there's that social experience. Then there's the where is it experience. So I'm out having fun, you know, in, 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 in what now is a, you know, purports as a retail store, but I don't actually want to carry this around with me, right? I'm going to go to my, have my favorite barista make some really complicated coffee drink. I don't want to carry this thing around with me. So they're going to look online. They're going to say, oh, I, I really like this one, but I want the other color. And also I'm going to buy two sizes because I might eat a lot tonight. And it won't fit. So I'm going to buy the size up bigger too. And I want it at my house or my apartment when I get home. So now all this, again, it's all driven by technology. Now it's this circle of activity, right? It's not a single line point that we always thought of as a supply chain. It's a supply circle now. All these things have to be connected, all these different rings for, this, for the brand to be successful. It's, not, it's no longer you know, some uh, you know, sports star you know, says drink Gatorade and everybody wants Gatorade. Everybody is their own influencer. They're all interacting and you've got to have this, this, uh, this full circle of connection and we're seeing retailers really struggling with this. So, uh, you know, I'm seeing, I don't want, I can't say names, but some big brands are looking at how to disperse their inventory. 
go in market with micro-fulfillment. So you know, old brands that you know are struggling with how to do this. There's some regentrified brands out there looking at what to do. They're looking at a hub and spoke. Maybe they'll have a, a, uh, you know, a mothership in, um, you know, that's supported by the Port of LA. People are moving further and further inland to get out of California. So Phoenix, uh, Reno, even Salt Lake are becoming more attractive places for big combined omni-channel hubs. But then there's more and more of these mini or micro fulfillment centers dispersed all throughout the country oftentimes in existing infrastructure. And that's what brands are doing. Some of them are using third-party logistics, cooperatives, collectives, but it's all driven by this availability of technology and getting people to work for the democratization of, of this supply circle and not everybody in their own individual chain. We're seeing that on the truck side as well with the technology today, where truck drivers will say, you've got a load going to XYZ company, yeah, I'm not going there because they're, the app rates that warehouse so low, yep. I'm not going to waste three, four hours trying to get unloaded. I'll take a different load, keep moving, and I can make more money that way. And we've had carriers uh, turn down loads yep. because they will not go to a specific warehouse destination because of issues that they have. Um, and it's because of the apps that are available out there. Drivers are using them. They see them and uh, it, it will influence rates. It will make a difference, and if you get a, get a driver to go there. Absolutely. Uh, Wendy, what are your main priorities while moving your freight as a shipper manufacturer? Getting it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, getting it there, getting it there on time, um, and getting it there in good condition. I will say I have been lucky. Our freight is bulky. It's not standard skid size. You know, people ask, what's your freight like? What's it like to haul your freight? I like to refer to it as a bag of chips. You got a lot more air in there than you do you have product in there. Um, so, I mean, I pay for a lot of empty space on a lot of my product. Um, but it can be difficult to handle because it's quick. You got all the touches from all the brake bolts. You have everything because we do a lot more LTL than we do truckload. Um, so one of my biggest things is getting it there in the right good selling condition and on time, you know, again, go back to the communication, the tracking, you know, I don't want to have to go track my load. I want you to be able to tell me where my load is as soon as I ask you where my load is. So that's really what I look for. And it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, it depends on what the customer wants. Absolutely. What are they looking for? and what are their specific requirements because there's a lot of options out there and if if depending on what the customer wants and their needs are i gotta have it there it's got to be on time no exceptions okay well that's going to rule out certain modes of transportation um, you probably don't want to go intermodal right you you want to go with something that's more uh got a better chance of making it when it's supposed to be there and so uh, we see that with a lot of customers today that they're like, it's got to be there, it's got to be there at this time, no exceptions, and that will dictate what form of method we use for moving their freight. Perfect. All right, perfect. Are there any other, any questions? 
beyond? Let's talk about let's talk about something cool. It's got to be some good question, right? Or else I'm going to talk about my something. goat farm. We're going to do the goat farm. <laughs> we have to. No. All right. Well, that's all that we have. Thank you for joining us. Oh, question. <laughs> How many goats do you have? So the uh, the Boo Oink Quack Goat Fiber and Rescue Pig Farm has six <laughs> goats, and we grow the finest mohair fiber uh, in the southeast. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone.